Section 29 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marwak. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 7. Unemployment, Family Structure and Social Disorganization. Part 1 recent economic trends the negro population in our country is as diverse in income occupation family composition and other variables as the white community nevertheless for purposes of analysis three major negro economic groups can be identified the first and smallest group consists of middle and upper income individuals and households whose educational occupational and cultural characteristics are similar to those of middle and upper income white groups the second and largest group contains Negroes whose incomes are above the poverty level, but who have not attained the educational, occupational, or income status typical of middle-class Americans. The third group has very low educational, occupational, and income attainments and lives below the poverty level. A recent compilation of data on American Negroes by the Departments of Labor and Commerce shows that although incomes of both Negroes and whites have been rising rapidly, negro incomes still remain far below those of whites negro median family income was only fifty eight per cent of the white median in 1966 negro family income is not keeping pace with white family income growth in constant 1965 dollars median non-white income in 1947 was two thousand one hundred seventy four dollars lower than median white income by 1966 the gap had grown to three thousand thirty six dollars the Negro upper income group is expanding rapidly and achieving sizable income gains. In 1966, 28% of all Negro families received incomes of $7,000 or more, compared with the 55% of white families. This was 1.6 times the proportion of Negroes receiving comparable incomes in 1960, and four times greater than the proportion receiving such incomes in 1947 moreover the proportion of negroes employed in high-skill high-status and well-paying jobs rose faster than comparable proportions among whites from nineteen sixty to nineteen sixty six as negro incomes have risen the size of the lowest income group has grown smaller and the middle and upper income groups have grown larger both relatively and absolutely about two-thirds of the lowest income group or twenty per cent of all negro families are making no significant economic gains despite continued general prosperity half of these hardcore disadvantaged more than two million persons live in central city neighborhoods recent special censuses in los angeles and cleveland indicate that the incomes of persons living in the worst slum areas have not risen at all during this period unemployment rates have declined only slightly the proportion of families with female heads has increased and housing conditions have worsened even though rents have risen thus between two point zero and two point five million poor negroes are living in disadvantaged neighborhoods of central cities in the united states these persons comprise only slightly more than one per cent of the nation's total population but they make up about sixteen to twenty per cent of the total negro population of all central cities and a much higher proportion in certain cities unemployment and underemployment the critical significance of employment 
The capacity to obtain and hold a good job is the traditional test of participation in American society. Steady employment with adequate compensation provides both purchasing power and social status. It develops the capabilities, confidence, and self-esteem an individual needs to be a responsible citizen and provides a basis for a stable family life. As Daniel P. Moynihan has written, The principal measure of progress toward equality will be that of employment. It is the primary source of individual or group identity. In America, what you do is who you are. To do nothing is to be nothing. To do little is to be little. The equations are implacable and blunt, and ruthlessly public. For the Negro American it is already, and will continue to be, the master problem. It is the measure of white bona fides. It is the measure of Negro competence, and also of the competence of American society. Most importantly, the linkage between problems of employment and the range of social pathology that afflicts the Negro community is unmistakable. Employment not only controls the present for the Negro American, but in a most profound way, it is creating the future as well. For residents of disadvantaged Negro neighborhoods, obtaining good jobs is vastly more difficult than for most workers in society. For decades, social, economic, and psychological disadvantages surrounding the urban Negro poor have impaired their work capacities and opportunities. The result is a cycle of failure. The employment disabilities of one generation breed those of the next. Negro Unemployment Unemployment rates among Negroes have declined from a post-Korean War high of 12.6% in 1958 to 8.2% in 1967. Among married Negro men, the unemployment rate for 1967 was down to 3.2%. Notwithstanding this decline, unemployment rates for Negroes are still double those for whites in every category, including married men, as they have been throughout the post-war period. Moreover, since 1954, even during the current unprecedented period of sustained economic growth, unemployment among Negroes has been continuously above the 6% recession level widely regarded as a sign of serious economic weakness when prevalent for the entire workforce. While the Negro unemployment rate remains high in relation to the white rate, the number of additional jobs needed to lower this to the level of white unemployment is surprisingly small. In 1967, approximately 3 million persons were unemployed during an average week, of whom about 638,000, or 21%, were non-whites. When corrected for undercounting, total non-white unemployment was approximately 712,000, or 8% of the non-white labor force. To reduce the unemployment rate to 3.4%, the rate prevalent among whites, jobs must be found for 57.5% of these unemployed persons. This amounts to nearly 409,000 jobs, or about 27% of the net number of new jobs added to the economy in the year 1967 alone and only slightly more than one-half of one percent of all jobs in the United States in 1967. The Low Status and Low-Paying Nature of Many Negro Jobs Even more important, perhaps, than unemployment is the related problem of the undesirable nature of many jobs open to Negroes. Negro workers are concentrated in the lowest-skilled and lowest-paying occupations. These jobs often involve substandard wages, great instability and uncertainty of tenure, extremely low status in the eyes of both employer and employee, little or no chance for meaningful advancement. 
and unpleasant or exhausting duties negro men in particular are more than three times as likely as whites to be in unskilled or service jobs which pay far less than most this concentration in the least desirable jobs can be viewed another way by calculating the changes which would occur if negro men were employed in various occupations in the same proportions as the male labor force as a whole not solely the white labor force thus upgrading the employment of negro men to make their occupational distribution identical with that of the labor force as a whole would have an immense impact upon the nature of their occupations about one point three million non-white men or twenty eight per cent of those employed in nineteen sixty six would move up the employment ladder into one of the higher status and higher paying categories the effect of such a shift upon the incomes of negro men would be very great using the nineteen sixty six job distribution the shift indicated above would produce about four point eight billion dollars more earned income for non-white men alone if they received the nineteen sixty five median income in each occupation this would be a rise of approximately thirty per cent in the earnings actually received by all non-white men in nineteen sixty five not counting any sources of income other than wages and salaries of course the kind of instant upgrading visualized in these calculations does not represent a practical alternative for national policy the economy cannot drastically reduce the total number of low-status jobs it now contains or shift large numbers of people upward in occupation in any short period therefore major upgrading in the employment status of negro men must come through a faster relative expansion of higher level jobs than lower level jobs which has been occurring for several decades an improvement in the skills of non-white workers so they can obtain a higher proportion of those added better jobs and a drastic reduction of discriminatory hiring and promotion practices in all enterprises both private and public nevertheless this hypothetical example clearly shows that the concentration of male negro employment at the lowest end of the occupational scale is greatly depressing the incomes of u s negroes in general in fact this is the single most important source of poverty among negroes it is even more important than unemployment as can be shown by a second hypothetical calculation in nineteen sixty six there were about seven hundred twenty four thousand unemployed non-whites in the united states on the average including adults and teenagers and allowing for the census bureau undercount of negroes if every one of these persons had been employed and had received the median amount earned by non-white males in nineteen sixty six three thousand eight hundred sixty four dollars this would have added a total of two point eight billion dollars to non-white income as a whole if only enough of these persons had been employed at that wage to reduce non-white unemployment from seven point three per cent to three point three per cent the rate among whites in nineteen sixty six then the income gain for non-whites would have totaled about one point five billion dollars but if non-white unemployment remained at seven point three per cent and non-white men were upgraded so that they had the same occupational distribution and incomes as all men in the labor force considered together this would have produced about four point eight billion dollars in additional income as noted above using nineteen sixty five earnings for calculation thus the potential income gains for upgrading the male non-white labor force are much larger than those from reducing non-white unemployment this conclusion underlines the difficulty of improving the economic status of negro men it is far easier to create new jobs than either to create new jobs with relatively high status and earning power or to upgrade existing employed or partly employed workers into such better quality employment 
Yet only such upgrading will eliminate the fundamental basis of poverty and deprivation among Negro families. Access to good quality jobs clearly affects the willingness of Negro men actively to seek work. In riot cities surveyed by the Commission with the largest percentage of Negroes in skilled and semi-skilled jobs, Negro men participated in the labor force to the same extent as, or greater than, white men. Conversely, where most Negro men were heavily concentrated in menial jobs, they participated less in the labor force than white men. Even given similar employment, Negro workers with the same education as white workers are paid less. This disparity doubtless results to some extent from inferior training in segregated schools, and also from the fact that large numbers of Negroes are only now entering certain occupations for the first time. However, the differentials are so large and so universal at all educational levels that they clearly reflect the patterns of discrimination which characterize hiring and promotion practices in many segments of the economy. For example, in 1966, among persons who had completed high school, the median income of Negroes was only 73% that of whites. Even among persons with an eighth-grade education, Negro median income was only 80% of white median income. At the same time, a higher proportion of Negro women than white women participates in the labor force at nearly all ages except 16 to 19. For instance, in 1966, 55% of non-white women from 25 to 34 years of age were employed, compared to only 38% of white women in the same age group. The fact that almost half of all adult Negro women work reflects the fact that so many Negro males have unsteady and low-paying jobs. Yet even though Negro women are often better able to find work than Negro men, the unemployment rate among adult non-white women, 20 years old and over, in 1967, was 7.1%, compared to the 4.3% rate among adult non-white men. Unemployment rates are, of course, much higher among teenagers, both Negro and white, than among adults. In fact, about one-third of all unemployed Negroes in 1967 were between 16 and 19 years old. During the first nine months of 1967, the unemployment rate among non-white teenagers was 26.5%. For whites, it was 10.6%. About 219,300 non-white teenagers were unemployed. About 58,300 were still in school but were actively looking for jobs. Subemployment in Disadvantaged Negro Neighborhoods in disadvantaged areas, employment conditions for Negroes are in a chronic state of crisis. Surveys in low-income neighborhoods of nine large cities made by the Department of Labor late in 1966 revealed that the rate of unemployment there was 9.3%, compared to 7.3% for Negroes generally and 3.3% for whites. Moreover, a high proportion of the persons living in these areas were underemployed. That is, they were either part-time workers looking for full-time employment or full-time workers earning less than $3,000 per year or had dropped out of the labor force. The Department of Labor estimated that this underemployment is two and a half times greater than the number of unemployed in these areas. Therefore, the subemployment rate, including both the unemployed and the underemployed, was about 32.7% in the nine areas surveyed, or 8.8 .8 times greater than the overall unemployment rate for all U.S. workers. Since underemployment also exists outside disadvantaged neighborhoods, comparing the full subemployment rate in these areas with the unemployment rate for the nation as a whole 
is not entirely valid however it provides some measure of the enormous disparity between employment conditions in most of the nation and those prevalent in disadvantaged negro areas in our large cities the critical problem is to determine the actual number of those unemployed and underemployed in central city negro ghettos this involves a process of calculation which is detailed in the note at the end of this chapter the outcome of this process is summarized in the following table non-white subemployment in disadvantaged areas of all central cities nineteen sixty seven group adult men unemployment one hundred two thousand underemployment two hundred thirty thousand total subemployment three hundred thirty two thousand group adult women unemployment one hundred eighteen thousand underemployment two hundred sixty six thousand total subemployment three hundred eighty four thousand group teenagers unemployment ninety eight thousand underemployment two hundred twenty thousand total subemployment three hundred eighteen thousand group total unemployment three hundred eighteen thousand underemployment seven hundred sixteen thousand total subemployment one million thirty four thousand therefore in order to bring subemployment in these areas down to a level equal to unemployment alone among whites enough steady reasonably paying jobs and the training and motivation to perform them must be provided to eliminate all underemployment and reduce unemployment by sixty five per cent for all three age groups combined this deficit amounted to nine hundred twenty three thousand jobs in nineteen sixty seven the magnitude of poverty in disadvantaged neighborhoods the chronic unemployment problems in the central city aggravated by the constant arrival of new unemployed migrants is the fundamental cause of the persistent poverty in disadvantaged negro areas poverty in the affluent society is more than absolute deprivation many of the poor in the united states would be well off in other societies relative deprivation inequality is a more useful concept of poverty with respect to the negro in america because it encompasses social and political exclusions as well as economic inequality because of the lack of data of this type we have had to focus our analysis on a measure of poverty which is both economic and absolute the social security administration's poverty level concept it is clear however that broader measures of poverty would substantiate the conclusions that follow in nineteen sixty six there were twenty nine point seven million persons in the united states fifteen point three per cent of the nation's population with incomes below the poverty level as defined by the social security administration of these twenty point three million were white sixty eight point three per cent and nine point three million non-white thirty one point seven per cent thus about eleven point nine per cent of the nation's whites and forty point six per cent of its non-whites were poor under the social security definition the location of the nation's poor is best shown from nineteen sixty four data as indicated by the following table percentage of those in poverty in each group living in metropolitan areas group whites in central cities twenty three point eight outside central cities twenty one point eight other areas fifty four point four total one hundred group non-whites in central cities forty one point seven outside central cities ten point eight other areas forty seven point five total 
100. Group. Total. In central cities, 29.4. Outside central cities, 18.4. Other areas, 52.2. Total, 100. Source. Social Security Administration. The following facts concerning poverty are relevant to an understanding of the problems faced by people living in disadvantaged neighborhoods. In central cities, 30.7% of non-white families of two or more persons lived in poverty compared to only 8.8% of whites. Of the 10.1 million poor persons in central cities in 1964, about 4.4 million of these, 43.6%, were non-whites and 5.7 million, 56.4% were whites. The poor whites were much older on the average than the poor non-whites. The proportion of poor persons 65 years old or older was 23.2% among whites, but only 6.8% among non-whites. Poverty was more than twice as prevalent among non-white families with female heads than among those with male heads, 57% compared to 21%. In central cities, 26% of all non-white families of two or more persons had female heads, as compared to 12% of white families. Among non-white families headed by a female and having children under six, the incidence of poverty was 81%. Moreover, there were 243,000 such families living in poverty in central cities, or over 9% of all non-white families in those cities. Among all children living in poverty within central cities, non-whites outnumbered whites by over 400,000. The number of poor non-white children equaled or surpassed the number of white poor children in every age group. Of the 4.4 million non-whites living in poverty within central cities in 1964, 52% were children under 16 and 61% were under 21. Since 1964, the number of non-white families living in poverty within central cities has remained about the same. Hence, these poverty conditions are probably still prevalent in central cities in terms of absolute numbers of persons, although the proportion of persons in poverty may have dropped slightly. End of section 29. Recording by Marwak.